Welcome everyone to our featured podcast on thought leadership with Dr. Ray McKinley. Dr. McKinley is an expert on leadership and character development. Let's join the conversation now. Hello everyone, this is Ray McKinley. Welcome to Ride the Elephant Today, our weekly podcast. We're really glad you joined us. We have been talking about relationships lately in our previous podcast, and also motivation, what inspires us to do what we do. As we put these two things together, we like to connect the dots. And one of the things we talked about last time were agreement-based relationships and how relationships we have sometimes have agreements and sometimes we don't have agreements in those relationships. However, it's important for us to recognize when we're in an agreement-based relationship with people and when we're not. And one of the things I want to talk about today is one of those challenges that we have in our relationships, and it's what I would call the elephant in the room, and it's the challenge that we have around entitlement. Many people would say that we have an enabled generation today that has been entitled. It depends what part of that generation you're in. If you're part of the generation in their 20s and early 30s, comparing them with the generation who is in the 50s and 60s. The people who are in the older generations would say that the younger generations are entitled and they've been enabled to a point where they have an expectation that's different than the expectations that they grew up with. And so I want to unpackage that a little bit, whether you agree with it or not. I'm going to give some context to that and how it applies in the workplace and in our relationships with each other. I wanna start by sharing an interesting observation that David Brooks made. And he made this a few years ago at the National Forum on Education in High School and College and some of the challenges that we're having in the educational processes of today. And he made this observation, he pulled up some research David Brooks, by the way, is a New York Times columnist. And he said, in this survey that was done in 1952, they asked seniors in high school, do you feel special? And in 1952, 12% of the respondents said, yes, they felt special. That meant that 88% said no. And in 2012, they did it again, and the seniors were asked the same question. And 80% said, yes, I feel special. And Brooks commented at this forum after comparing the 12% from 60 years earlier to the 80% more currently, that we have been telling the recent generation that they were special and they have come to believe that. And so I find that a very interesting that we have this generation today that feels special and we have in fact made them feel special. You know, before World War II, there was a parenting belief that life is tough and that we need to make sure our children are tough enough to stand up to it. And there was a kind of a philosophy of spare the rod, spoil the child. It was something that was important for us to 
make our children tough. And I think coming out of the Great Depression, coming out of World War II, and some of the challenge that the older generation had, they were very much in this mindset of, you know, we don't want to spare the rod and spoil the child. Well, today, many people would say we have spared the rod and we have spoiled the child. And that's why we see the entitlement generation come forward. You know, I want to ask Brian, my guest today, if you have any observation about that, would you say that we have created an entitled generation? Do you think your generation is entitled? What do you think about that? I think it's a mix. Okay, tell me more about that. It's a mix. One is it and one is it not? Well, I don't think that you're trying to implicate that this generation or future generations as being, you know, bad altogether, like a bad batch. And I think that this is a easy generalization to make, and it applies in a lot of ways. I already know that you're not saying that life is too easy because life is still really hard. Sure. For lots of people, young people included. Oh, for sure. But there's a different conversation that we can have about how certain people feel entitled based on their sort of social status, if you will, their class background and what their parents are able to provide. And then there's other people who feel entitled in their relationship with our government. And I see those all as kind of being distinct. And I just want to you know, clarify this generalization that you're making because I know that you're not saying that everybody's lazy, and I know that you're not saying that no. life is too easy, but you are saying that, hey... If the shoe fits, wear it. Okay. <laughs> That's what I am saying, because what happens is I think it's important to recognize that this is an identity, it's a situation that does exist in the world today, and there are people who feel entitled, and there are people who have been enabled, and there's people who feel that that younger generation has been enabled. And like you said, it's not everybody, but if the shoe fits, then wear it. And what I mean by that is, is I think it's important that as we look at these conversations we're having on a weekly basis, we're really asking everyone to become self-aware. In other words, look at this and see if it applies to you. And it may not apply to you, but really critically think it through. Be serious about what the message is that we're saying here and look at it and say, hey, is that fit for me? Or am I a parent who's creating an enabled child? And if that fits for me, what can I do different? And if it fits for me that I'm in relationships with people in my workplace that are very entitled and they're hard to manage and they're hard to work with because I like working with the people who are my same age and I'm really having a tough time working with the people who are younger and this new generation because they're so different and you got to talk to them different because they're so sensitive and they're so easily distracted by the things that they are distracted by their enabled entitledness. And of course, that's an observation and that's a conversation I want to have a little bit more. And I talked about sensitivity some people would say that a naval person is very sensitive. They're very easily triggered. I have an interesting story about that. And just hear this story out and let me know what you think about it. Because 
Back when I was teaching this concept in school, and when I asked the class, and these were 18-year-olds, I said, do you think you're special? And, you know, we talked about that conversation about David Brooks. And they said, yeah, I feel I'm special. Do you feel you're entitled? Yeah, we're entitled. And they were very willing to admit that they were entitled and they were enabled, and they didn't really have any regrets about that. They kind of felt good about it. So there was really an observation on their own or self-awareness that they, in fact, were entitled. And then one of the kids said, yeah, we're very sensitive. We're like snowflakes. We melt when something doesn't go right. You know, we're very sensitive. That triggered me because I thought sensitive, that's an interesting word that they just used. And their description of sensitive was that we're easily triggered and that we're easily bothered and we get our feelings hurt easily. And so we're sensitive. And I thought, wow, that's interesting. So I always thought the word sensitive in my amphora for sensitive was that I was a very caring person. I was showing sensitivity to another person. I was caring for them. I would put myself in their shoes. I would try to understand them. So sensitive to me was being other-centered. Sensitive to this generation in this conversation we had that morning was, no, I get my feelings hurt easily. So I took it upon myself to go to the dictionary, and I looked up what Webster had to say about it. And Webster clearly indicated that sensitive was you were caring about another person. And so I thought that was very, very interesting that there was nowhere in the dictionary that said sensitivity had anything to do with being easily triggered or getting your feelings hurt or melting or being a snowflake. It has more to do with kind of being able to listen to other people and yes. hear other people's problems and, mm -hmm. and being open to other people and kind of being other centered, not this like afraid sort of thing. Yeah. And I thought that was very interesting. And so I kind of challenged the students as I did. And I, I like to do when we have a conflicting understanding, which clearly was occurring in the classroom at the time. So I said, you know, let's see if we can find a better word. You know, in other words, if sensitive is to care about another person and being aware of how to respond to another person in a sensitive way, what word is in the English vernacular that would be having your feelings hurt easily or being uh, triggered or something like that? And then, of course, we searched that out and we couldn't find anything that really fit. And so we started to come up with, well, maybe we should make up a word, because there really should be two words, because these are clearly two different things. So we came up with the word sensophobic. And sensophobic would be more descriptive of the feeling they were describing about being triggered or being sensitive. So the definition we gave to sensophobic was having one's feelings easily hurt, being easily annoyed. And the definition we left for sensitive was Webster's definition of having an acute mental, emotional sensibility, an awareness, and responsive to the feelings of others. And so one was very other-centered and one was very self-centered. And I found that very interesting that the entitled generation found a whole new way to morph into a word that we always used as being an other-centered word to a more self-centered word. So, Brian, what do you think about this sense of phobia and sensitivity 
conversation? Well, it is indicative of a cultural thing that's going on. And I find that a lot of people don't usually come to understand things from their own perspective. They don't try to understand things from their own perspective. They don't try to seek kind of a uh, broader understanding. They just kind of adopt what other people have said to them. So you have this cultural phenomenon of people basically just, well, everybody else says that, you know, we need sensitivity training. And I mean, it seems like that's just a not fully thought out understanding of the idea of what it means to be sensitive. I like the word fragile because I agree with you that sensitive is more of a caring, nurturing, being there for someone. Sure. Characteristic. And fragile is a fear of getting your feelings hurt. Fragile people need a safe space. Mm -hmm. Right. So, but what's interesting to me in this conversation is you mentioned entitlement. You mentioned enabling. Yes. And then you mentioned sensitivity, like being a snowflake, sensitivity in the snowflake sense, or, or is this sensophobia? Kind of, and you're kind of lumping these all together. Are they all the same? Are they all different? Are you lumping them together because they all interrelate? Well, I think one. I think the word enabled came out of uh, the way we raised our kids, the way that the older generation raised this generation. And enabled was a term that was used when you enabled your child, you're kind of running the interference for them. You're being a helicopter parent or being a lawnmower parent. You're hovering over them. What are those? A helicopter parent Heli stays close? And a helicopter parent kind of swoops in and rescues their child from the challenges that they might be having with a teacher at school or a challenge with another student. They come in, instead of teaching the child how to address the situation themselves and let the child learn from the experiences of figuring it out, they, they go in and, and fight the, the day. They, they save the day, they fight the battle for the kid instead of making the kid fight their own battle and learning from their experiences of that. So that's a helicopter parent. That's a term that was coined a few years ago. As these parents would come into colleges, college administrators started to echo that and blast that out. And to the point where at the orientations, as these parents brought their kids to college, they would sit down and say to the parents, no, you got to stop being a helicopter parent. You got to stop rescuing your kid. Your kid's in college now. He needs to figure these things out. Don't be calling me and asking me why your kid got a C and getting in the middle of that process. You can coach your kid on how to handle it and how to deal with it, but don't do it for them. So that's a process of enabling. What's the lawnmower parent doing? The lawnmower is cutting the path ahead of them to smooth the way. In other words, it's premeditated helicoptering. They're doing it easier right from the beginning. In other words, the a lawnmower parent would take the kid's project and make sure the kid was not going to look bad in front of the eyes of his fellow students and his teacher. So they would do the project for the kid. And teachers would always say, hey, clearly the kid didn't do the project by themselves. The parent did the project and the parent did the project so the kid could have smooth sailing. She cut the way before the kid had to deal with the issue. And so it's basically 
ensuring that child's going to have success because they actually did it for them. So in other words, we're not letting the child experience failures, not letting the child experience the, the outcomes that they don't want and learn how to adjust and handle those situations better instead of recognizing and say, oh, my mommy and daddy will take care of it for me. And as long as mommy and daddy's there to take care of it for them, they never learn how to, to overcome that. And this is what we've seen even in the workplace. I've even hired 22 and 23-year-olds to come in my office and then had their parent call me and talk to me about their 22 and 23-year-old son having a challenge with what my expectation was for them. And I'm saying, really? You as a parent now of a 22-year-old kid's calling me instead of letting the kid figure it out themselves? Wow. You know, so when you ask the question, what is enabling? Yeah. That's what enabling is. Enabling is stepping in front of the situation and making it easy for their child. And so then is entitlement just an attitude of expecting that? Yeah, so the entitlement would be expecting that, yeah. And that's what we get in the workplace with a lot of these younger people. They expect that they're going to be given this latitude instead of being held accountable. Because when you hold them accountable, they're going to break down and cry and go and tell mommy and daddy that they're being held accountable at work. And then, of course, that creates a problem. At 22 and 23 and 25 and 26, they really need to have those struggles when they're in junior high school and figure it out. Interesting. So that then when they get to be out of the home, they know how to do it. Yeah. But we as parents want to rescue them and enable them by doing the things we do that prevent them from learning what they need to learn. Right. And that is marked by an attitude of unwarranted expectation. In other words, this is a person, for example, might come in and say, I want this and I want this and I want this and I expect this. Mm -hmm. Instead of saying, this is my experience. Mm -hmm. This is what I plan to bring to the table. Mm -hmm. Here's some of my talents. Here's how I plan to contribute. Exactly. And, and you're just saying that there's sort of a issue with seeing more immaturity in adults. And you're suggesting that that immaturity in adults is rooted in a cultural upbringing of enabling yeah. Yes. And, you know, in a lot of ways, that word immature is kind of a tough word to use in this situation, because in a lot of ways, those 22 and 23 year olds that we're talking about are very mature in a lot of ways. They're very social. They're very caring. They can be very dynamic. They can be very personable. Mm -hmm. They can really be stars in the sense of just a very talented, talented person. Yeah. So it's not so much a maturity issue. Yeah, as it is a expectation issue. I think this ties to motivation again and ties to inspiration. As long as you are finding that you're in this entitlement situation and you've been en enabled and you've been entitled and you had your parents cut the path for you all the way, you then maybe don't have the same drive and inspiration to move forward with your life because you feel like you might not be able to overcome the challenges that might come forward to you as you move into this 
initiative that you want to have because you haven't had the experiences of breaking through those difficult scenarios when you were younger. So I think we cripple our youth as they go into their 20s, as they're trying to figure out their life. And we seem to see now that it's in the decade of the 20s that young people are struggling with saying who I am, who am I going to be? What am I going to do with myself? What kind of things am I going to do with my life? What's going to be my contribution? What's going to be my career? What's going to be my focus? They're oftentimes very confused by that, and they're struggling to figure it out. And if you're struggling to figure it out, I think one of the factors that could be causing your struggle is to maybe consider that, hey, I've been entitled and I've been enabled by my parents. So now this has been very difficult for me to find my way because my parents didn't let me find my way back then. Mm. So the way I find my way now is to just continue to meet the expectation of my parents. I continue to meet the expectations of my friends and peers and maybe the expectations of my coworkers. I continue to do that because it hasn't been developed in me. What are my core convictions, what are my core beliefs, what are my core values, and my core principles that I intend to live by? That has not been created in you potentially because you came from an entitled, enabled parents who rescued you on every step of the way. And if that's the case, you may want to look back at your personal history and say, ha, interesting. You know, this is not something that's a total surprise to us as we watch this happen, because what we did, very interestingly, is, I don't know if you've heard the name Dr. Benjamin Spock. Now, Dr. Benjamin Spock, for those of you who don't know, wrote a book just after World War II, would have been 80 years ago, 70 years ago, and it was the quintessential parent book. It was he wrote a book about how to raise children. And his whole thing was we need to give them unconditional love, total acceptance, and not be so hard on them. So we found this new generation to be not so hard on their kids. And then we stepped in and helped them along the way. And he wrote that book in his late 20s, right shortly after he got his PhD in psychology. And he watched his teaching unfold for 50 years because he lived to be 92 years old. And one of the things he said before he died was he recanted his teaching and he said, quote, we have a generation of brats. Parents aren't firm enough with their children for fear of losing their love and incurring their resentment. This is a cruel deprivation that we professionals had imposed on mothers and fathers. Of course, we did it with the best intentions. We didn't realize until it was too late our know-it-all attitude was undermining the self-assurance of parents. Here's a guy that wrote the book on parenting for the generation that raised you in your age group. And now he's recanting what he set off and started in the first place. I find that very interesting. Unfortunately, as you as a 20 or 30 year old, you look back and say, Wow, if the guy that's kind of recanting what he encouraged my parents to do when it came to raising me and what he encouraged my school system to do in raising, because schools are involved in raising children as well and educating children. And he totally spun the academia and parenting roles around 180 degrees by his book. 
And we can look now and say, oh, we've had a consequence in that. And the consequence we're experiencing today, we can't go back in the womb and be raised again, but we can go back and look at the situations that we were raised in and say, all right, how has that worked for me? How is it not working for me? And what can I do about it? Yeah. I've seen this model firsthand, and I think that it's interesting how a lot of people probably have never even been exposed directly to Dr. Spock and his book, but there has been a cultural phenomenon of which that book is certainly a part where it's just like, you just got to love them. You just love them. You just got to love on them. Mm -hmm. And it's like, okay, that's all good, especially if you're grandma. Yes. But there's a time and a place for tough love. Yes. And if just love on them is give them whatever they want when they want it. Yes. You're saying that is not realistic, basically, right? Because the world isn't going to just love you. So you got to have a parent that balances it out with a little bit of tough love from time to time. Absolutely. Interesting. And I think to recognize that and say, okay, what can I do different is a great question. So what do you do now that you're caught in this quandary of being raised in this environment where you're made to feel special, like David Brooks said in the survey he reported on, you know, 80% of the people today feel that they feel special. Wait, what's wrong with feeling special? I don't want to totally derail you here. But I'm curious about that. What's wrong with people feeling special? It isn't so much right or wrong. It's the observation of what is. So... The question is, why 60 years ago did only 12% of the students say they felt special? And why today does 80%? That's the bigger question. It isn't right or yeah. wrong. So why do you think only 12% of the people said that? And why today does almost everybody say that they feel special? I'm special. Yeah, you are because you are, <laughs> you are the entitled one. <laughs> but I am special. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it's just a different definition of like unique. Because I think of special as being unique. Maybe the new definition of special is I deserve, like I'm entitled to. Well, what's happening now is, okay, let's ask you this. So if we feel we're special, we feel we're entitled. So we come out of our environment where we're told that we're special and we believe it. We are being given all kinds of trophies and accolades and everyone gets a participation award. What's the movie about Meet the Parents where Ben Stiller put up a trophy on the mantle and it was ninth place? Right. So we get ninth place trophies now. And so everybody then is now acknowledged for being special. The problem is that in reality, when they come into the world of the workplace, that isn't the case. They aren't special. They have a responsibility and they have to fit into an agreement in a relationship that they can now perform and they don't have their parents there to provide for them. So we see that this generation comes into the workplace expecting to be cared for and expected to be given all kinds of accommodations, expected to have safe rooms for when they maybe are sad and they want to go and sit down and because they're under too much stress or any of those number of things. So we've seen this generation then 
is that generation now looking to their parents to continue to rescue them, even in their 20s and 30s and 40s. And then when we turn around and say, okay, when our parents pass away and they move on and they can't necessarily rescue us, who do we then look for to rescue us? Is this generation now looking for the government to rescue them? So this has this cascading effect of am I now expecting the government to care for me or am I going to be a contributor to society or am I going to be a taker in the society? Okay. And I think that's one of the side effects that we see as this plays out is how this entitled generation then becomes beholden to the government and they want a government that then takes care of them. And if, as soon as we give our authority to the government and give them the responsibility over us, we start to lose our freedoms one by one. And I think we are starting to see that in our society as we, freedoms are taken away one by one because we look to the government and say, you take care of us. And in taking care of us, we've lost our responsibility to take care of ourselves. Yeah. And I just really feel strongly that I just wanted to clarify that because well, for me, my thinking is just that unique talent is really important. In fact, to your point about contribution, someone is more apt to contribute if they have faith that their unique talents are valued. That's true. And so when you say special, I just want to make sure, because what you're, it seems that what you're saying is that we tell everybody they're special, whether they have unique talents or not. Instead of digging deep into our children's mm -hmm. capacities and saying, this is a unique talent that you have. Mm -hmm. Instead of doing that, we just say, you're special. We don't dig in on their unique talent. We just say you're special just because you exist. You're saying that to be special is to find what unique contribution you bring to the table. That's right. That's different. Yes. And then that contribution and that being a part of society helps enhance your independence and the independence of others because you are participating and exercising some power on the scene. Right. Which is interesting. It is interesting. I feel so often that one of the really interesting things about all these concepts is that at first blush, it so often feels like, what's even the problem with what you're saying? Like, it seems so benign and normal, right, to be entitled and special. And you're saying, level up. Don't be the normal. Level up. Yes. So what do you mean by when you say that word, level up? What does that mean to you? Well, it if it's so common to have this attitude, if this is something that, it just seems very normal for people to have an entitled attitude or an attitude of I'm special, right? And I deserve this and I deserve that. That seems like regular normal behavior, like, oh, a person should stand up for what they want, you know? If you feel entitled to it, go get it. And you're saying, if you wanna do that, fine, be normal. But here's a way that you can level up and step out of normalcy into a higher level of thinking, a higher level of contribution, being a leader, because leaders aren't normal. A leader has to step out of normalcy into a different place. So you're saying level up. 
and join the leaders and right. stop being entitled and start being a contributor. Exactly. And then the awards will ensue from your contribution. So instead of approaching the situation with, this is the checklist of things that I want, you approach the situation with, this is the checklist of things that I'm going to contribute. Right. And the reward will come in time. Yeah, when you step up and start saying, what can I do every day to make a difference in someone else's life? What can I do to help another person advance their life and their career and their thinking? What can I do to create value for other people? You're not looking to say, what am I going to get? What am I going to do? What's in it for me? Which is what the entitled person takes. What's in it for me? What's in it for me? What's in it for me? Hmm. In order to flip that, you got to look at that and say, okay, if that's me, what do I need to do differently? And I think you hit it on the head when you say, what can I do to make a contribution? Yes, give credit to the people that have made you who you are. Appreciate that. Be humble about it. Mm -hmm. Be authentic and real and make a contribution to others. So another way of saying that is when you walk into a situation, walk into a relationship and say, what can I do to bring value to this relationship? And that could be in the workplace, for example. What can I do in the workplace to bring value to other people, to a person walking in the door? What can I do to bring value to my fellow coworker? What can I do to bring value to a patient or a patron or a, my consumer? Mm -hmm. What can I do to make a contribution? And I think that's key. And I think then you start to shift instead of saying, what's in it for me? What could I do for others? Mm -hmm. And then have a gratitude for others that they're a part of your life and being grateful for that. And that's being more other-centered. So I think we can break this pattern of coming out of an entitlement situation, coming out of a situation where we've been granted all these things by our parents and made to feel special. We can break this pattern by starting to say, what can I do for others? And what can I do to make other people more successful, because in making them successful, you're making yourself successful. And I think that's the big thing I want people to recognize is that catch yourself into that mischief and see what you can do to shift. Yeah. You're saying it's like have faith that your best efforts are going to yield good outcome. Bring something to the table, contribute, and have faith that if you contribute, you and everybody else are going to benefit instead of being afraid of what am I going to get out of it? Instead right. of being afraid that you're not going to get your needs met. Right, exactly. Yeah, so when you say, okay, well, what things can I do? What action steps? I think one of the things you can do is make sure that when you're on social media, write only affirming things about others. Write something that builds somebody else up. Mm. And affirms, and affirms other people. <laughs> Instead of trashing people and saying something negative about them, say something positive about them. Yeah. Okay? Another thing you can do is, you know, when you start describing other people, instead of using negative words, like they're stupid or they're ugly or I can't believe they did that, find character qualities that you can assign and attribute to another person. So when you talk about another person, talk about their hospitality, talk about their sense of humor, talk about their giving nature, talk about their abilities, 
give them credit for things that you've observed in them instead of beating them up. I think the other thing you can do is you can help others be successful. Show up every day and say, what can I do to make other people successful? And in the end, I'm going to be successful by making other people successful. Put yourself in other people's shoes. Easy to say, hard to do. Honor others, show them respect. When people mess up, give them a second chance. Take personal responsibility for how you respond to the situations that happen to your life and just allow other people to do the same as well. So it's a tough one to understand. It's a tough one to grab a hold of. Do you have any other things you want to add to that, Brian? Even if it feels contrived, I think those are great suggestions. And even if you got to fake it sometimes or kind of force it out of yourself, yeah, you got to try it sometimes. Try that on. Instead of going to the negative about someone else, just force yourself to only speak about the positive. Because sometimes it's hard. You have to take a second to think about that. But if you force it a few times, maybe it'll be easier next time. Yeah, exactly. Well, I think this has been a great conversation. Yeah, very interesting, as always. Yeah, and I'm really glad everyone joined in. We'd love to hear from you. If you have any comments, please send a note to ray at raymckinley.com. And we'd love to continue the conversation. Thank you, Brian. Hope you can join us next week for Ride the Elephant Today for another great podcast. And have a great week. Bye, everyone. Dr. Ray McKinley is a speaker, author, and coach. In his new book, Ride the Elephant, The Journey to True Success, Dr. McKinley addresses the crisis in personal leadership and what you can do about it. Thank you for joining us today. Your feedback is important to us, and we'd like to hear from you. Email your comments and questions to ray at raymckinley.com. Join us next week for another informative podcast with Dr. Ray McKinley. Have a great week. 